0: Welcome back to Studs, I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hard-working people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you all who have reached out with kind words about this season devoted to educators. It's been a real thrill of mine to dive into the working lives of my comrades in arms. And it's been a pleasure to give the microphone to people in the classroom doing the work, helping to raise our kids, being pillars of the community. Look, I can't tell you that I love school, but I can tell you this. I love the hope that is necessarily at the core of what teachers do for a living. And in these days where hope seems hard to harness, it's been a source of great inspiration to me to be in conversation with my colleagues from around the world for whom hope is an indispensable asset in their working lives. And if you like me need reasons for hope, Look no further than Shanti Chu. Shanti Chu is a philosophy instructor at a community college in Northern Illinois. We discussed the challenges and the opportunities that the community college setting provides Shanti to pursue her duty and her calling, which is to democratize philosophy. While maintaining rigorous philosophical explorations, which is indeed power for her course, Shanti works to make the study of philosophy as much an applied art as an ancient tradition. Now I might tell you, my dear listener, that for many years I myself facilitated a philosophy society as a co-curricular activity at high schools on both sides of the mighty Atlantic. Shanti was a distinguished member of one of my first philosophy society chapters, So it was, as you might imagine, a real thrill to reconnect with her and to learn about her work. And I might also add here that in reconnecting with Shanti, I learned that she's evidently omnicompetent, enviably so. In addition to her deeply rooted commitment to community colleges, she's a vegan food blogger and a recording artist, and I have linked to all of her passion projects in the show notes. I've also linked to some of the books and videos we discuss in this episode. So no need to take notes, my friends. I gotcha. I'm here for you. Now join me in conversation as I, like Glossone and Thrasymachus before me, enjoy the honor of exploring life and work with a philosopher deeply devoted to community and to justice. Shanti Chu, I have been a cheerleader, if not a total fanboy of yours for something like two decades. And it is for that reason, perhaps among others, that it is a bona fide pleasure to have you with me here today. Shanti, how do you describe what you do?
1: So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I teach philosophy full time at a community college and I teach a variety of different modalities. So face-to-face, blended and online or online via Zoom. And I also do some committee work and service work. So that's basically what I do in a nutshell. And my main pedagogy is to show the applicability of philosophy to a wide variety of students.
0: I want to get into all of that stuff. Before we do, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to at least briefly walk us along your path. Like, how and why did you choose to become a professor of philosophy?
1: So I was always interested in how human beings function, understanding why are we the way we are? How did we come to be the way we are? And so I started off as a psychology major in college and then for my degree, I, I was required to take philosophy courses, and I fell in love with philosophy. I realized how applicable it was, and I had a really inspiring professor, an ethics professor, who talked about how philosophy can be applied to social justice issues. And so previously, I believed in the stereotype that philosophy was more of a theoretical discipline, and it wasn't until this class with her where I realized, wow, I really love the kinds of questions that are being asked. I love how deep it's going, but at the same time, I also love how it can be applied to social problems and trying to, as cliche as it sounds, trying to make the world a quote unquote better place. So I ended up double majoring in philosophy. And then at the end of my undergrad, I was really struggling with figuring out whether I should go to grad school in philosophy or psychology because I really (laughs) loved school and I knew I wanted to have more experiences with my education. And I also realized that I wanted to be a professor at the end of my undergraduate career just because of how I could continue to research and study and communicate with people. So I decided to do philosophy because I love how qualitative it is there is a lot of ambiguity and I appreciate that. And while I still do love psychology, I wasn't super excited about the quantitative scientific like research SPSS stuff that I had to do. So I felt that I connected more intuitively with philosophy. And then I went into a master's program for philosophy. And at the end of that, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue on and get my PhD because even though it's a lot better now the applicability of philosophy is not really celebrated in it like high theory academic philosophy and so i didn't know if i really wanted to deal with some of that so i decided to start teaching right after and kind of see how i felt about it see how the experience would be for me and then i just fell in love with teaching and i realized that i just i wanted to teach full time so After my experiences with teaching and doing service work and things like that, I ended up taking the job here at at the College of Lake County. It's a community college out in the northern suburbs of Chicago. I'm familiar with Lake County as I went to high school in Lake County, but at the same time, I didn't go to community college myself. So it's definitely a humbling experience. And that's how I ended up where I am today.
0: It brings me tremendous joy to learn that you fell in love with teaching. How did you fall in love with teaching?
1: I think attention I've experienced for most of my adult life is trying to figure out how to apply theory to reality, how to apply theory to practice. And so I felt that teaching was such a great application of theory and practice because you are able to kind of share and discuss these theories with students and they can apply it to their lives and they can have these conversations together about thinking deeply regarding these issues of human identity and and reality and social justice. And so I felt that teaching is, it's very hands-on, it's very concrete. And that's basically how I fell in love with it because I felt like it was that great fusion of theory and practice. And I also loved how I was learning from my students and college students are adults, obviously, but they're also really open to learning these ideas and and engaged in exploration. And I find that inspiring for myself as a human being, too.
0: I'm really glad to hear that you remain inspired. And I want to talk about your work at the College of Lake County. But before we dive into your relationship to your work, I hope you might describe the setting in which you teach. You said you are at the College of Lake County. And I should tell you, like, I'm a real community college advocate. I think that community colleges are an underdiscussed and sometimes undervalued asset in American education. And I, I wish more people like really carefully considered community colleges. What was it about the community college setting that appealed to you?
1: Well, I love how It's a space for students who don't necessarily come from wealthy economic means to be able to partake in education, to be able to engage with these questions and these ideas that have typically been maybe hoarded or been exclusive for people um, who have the economic means. And so community college makes education a lot more accessible. And specifically with a faculty position at a community college, your focus is on teaching, if I were at a four-year institution, a research university, the focus is on research and teaching would become second. But with a community college, it's all about teaching. It's about focusing on how we can be better advocates for our students to not just inside of the classroom, but also outside of the classroom. In, in higher ed, we don't have training to be teachers were basically, as they say, I don't like this term, but quote unquote, subject matter experts. So I think at the in the community college setting, I've had the opportunity to engage in so much professional development with teaching, and it's really helped me um, connect to students a lot better than when I first started teaching. But at the same time, I can still do research. I still can publish things if I want, but I don't have that pressure to. The pressure is on teaching, and that's what I want to be doing. I also wanted to say that when I think about people who've had had a profound influence on me in terms of my development as a human being and intellectually, it's been my teachers. It's been my high school teachers like you. It's been my college professors. And so I definitely have a very fond connection with education. And so being in that field is something that I knew I wanted to continue doing.
0: Well, I'm glad that you continue to do it and I'm glad that you continue to be inspired by it. Perhaps a little bit less inspiring is the following question, because (laughs) I I have this terrible habit sometimes in these recorded conversations to not get into some of the nuts and bolts. So if you'll humor me, let's get into some of those nuts and bolts, like Mm -hmm. what courses do you teach? Like, how is it determined what courses you teach? Do you tend to teach the same courses every semester? Like, how does that stuff work?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I pretty much teach the same courses every semester. Since the philosophy department is mainly for students who are transferring to four-year institutions, I end up teaching introduction to philosophy, introduction to ethics, world religions, philosophy of gender and sexuality. So those are the main courses I teach. There's also an honors program that I teach courses in. So it's like an introduction to philosophy or ethics honors version of it. So those are basically the classes I teach. And like I said, it's a mixture of modalities. So some online anytime, some uh, online via Zoom, and then also face-to-face.
0: Is there a course that you wish to teach that you... Don't teach
1: Yeah um, one of the places I was adjuncting at it was University of Dayton and I was able to teach a philosophy of race and gender class and a philosophy of revolution class and then political philosophy class. so I really loved teaching those classes. Specifically at CLC, it's hard to teach more elective philosophy courses just because enrollment can be very low since they don't necessarily always transfer to a four-year. So that's why I don't necessarily always have the opportunity to teach those classes, but I can infuse those concepts within Intro to Philosophy or Ethics and and Philosophy of Gender.
0: Philosophy of Revolution doesn't fly in Lake County.
1: (laughs) No, not quite, (laughs) but I can put it in into my Introduction to Philosophy course.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, let's talk about the Intro to Philosophy course. Maybe we should start here. What are your main goals in your Intro to Philosophy course?
1: As I said before, my main pedagogy is to highlight the applicability of philosophy to everyday life. So in terms of my own interest as a philosopher and educator. It's about also being able to apply philosophy to social justice issues. So, encouraging students to apply philosophy to social justice issues and their own lived experiences is definitely an important course goal because if we don't really apply it to our own lives if we don't apply it to the world we live in and we're not interested in philosophy to begin with right it's going to be a really boring class it's going to be a painful experience so kind of highlighting those connections and conveying hey this is how it can be applied and yeah plato is dead he was alive a long time ago his life was very different obviously but He's asking the same questions that we're still asking today, we're just using slightly different language. So how can students really recognize the applicability of philosophy to their own lives, to their own lived experiences, and social justice with respect to, you know, the community college demographic is extremely diverse economically, racially, ethnically, also we have many first generation students. So in terms of immigration status, but also in terms of being the first generation in their family to go to college. So I think that social justice issues aren't just a theoretical kind of tangent, for many of our students. They're living and breathing these issues that we're talking about. So being able to kind of highlight those connections is an important course goal for me. And also that kind of ties in with the one I was talking about, but also being able to recognize the practical importance of philosophy. The fact that we experience these questions all the time with having an existential dilemma, for example, or recognizing how we have different perceptions of reality and it can be confusing. And then also recognizing our own perspective and biases when we're interpreting knowledge and experience and how we might think knowledge or our own idea of knowledge is objective, but it's influenced by so many factors that we don't necessarily recognize. And we all come in with assumptions and values and biases in every situation. So being aware of that is key. And... The term critical thinking, I know, is is used a lot without necessarily defining it, but helping students develop their critical thinking skills, which is a way to encourage them to recognize the limits of their own knowledge, right, recognize their own humility, being able to question forms of authority, including myself, being able to question what the media tells them, and recognize the sources that they are reading So being able to interpret information and comprehend it, I think, is also a component of developing critical thinking skills.
0: I think you're right that the term critical thinking gets thrown around quite a bit, though perhaps not too much in education. Mm -hmm. How do you foster critical thinking among your students? Because teachers, instructors, professors, we're all seeking to do that. How do you help your students to become more rigorous, critical thinkers?
1: Yeah, that's definitely something that I hope I'm doing, but you can never necessarily be sure about. But I think, for example, in my introduction to philosophy course, you know, we talk about Plato's allegory of the cave, and I ask students to think about the different caves they might be in or an experience that they had where they thought they knew something and they thought they a hundred percent understood the situation. And then they realized that it was kind of a, a skewed idea or a misrepresentation of that. And I frame it and teach it with the danger of a single story. It's a Ted talk that um, Chimamanda Adichie did. And so In that video, she talks about all of these single stories and I make, you know, we talk about those connections between the single story and the allegory of the cave, since the single story is very contemporary. And I use that to kind of frame the course throughout the semester. So I encourage students to think about what are some of the single stories that we believe in in our society or we believe in individually and to try to encourage those questions throughout different units in the semester And then at the beginning of the semester, I also ask students to come up with their own learning objectives. And it's something that they return to looking at throughout the course. So even just having thinking through one's own learning objectives, rather than just being told like, this is what you have to do, I think is a way of cultivating critical thinking and then encouraging students to make those connections between the concepts we're learning about in class, and then finding a credible news article That illustrates what we're talking about in class, I think, is a way to make those applications, which I think is a form of critical thinking. In my ethics class, students do debates on different topics, and they're not necessarily super happy with this, but I assign them arbitrarily to different sides. So that way, even if they don't agree with it, they're at least exposed to the different side. And with the ethics course, too, we read different perspectives on these issues, which can be extremely difficult when it's something that you really care about and you're passionate about. But as a means of cultivating that critical thinking, right, it's important to be exposed to that other side. And so students have to also come up with counter arguments in their debates and apply the ethical theories to the contemporary issues. So for example, how do you apply Kantian theory to abortion? Or how do you apply Aristotelian virtue ethics to drug use and legalization, So I would say those making those connections, applications, recognizing one's own biases are ways I try to encourage critical thinking in my courses.
0: Nice. Shanti, if you'll forgive me, I just want to make you smile for a second by telling you that I had just read Adichie's Feminist Manifesto in 15 Suggestions Mm -hmm. with my eight-year-old daughter and had a really challenging discussion about it with a handful of young women at my school in Berlin. So Mm -hmm. you and I fighting the same fight. (laughs) Makes me smile. Had to tell you. (laughs) Hoping to make you smile. Yes. (laughs) You brought up Plato twice. Let's dive into it. I don't do too much research on my guests, but I did check out your website and I did find in so doing that your intro to philosophy course it starts with Plato's Allegory of the Cave, and it ends with Cornel West on Black Identity. Can you do me a favor and draw the red line from Plato to Brother West for me?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it. it is definitely a journey through philosophy and with Plato— Students may have read Allegory of the Cave in high school, but I like to kind of frame our intro course around Allegory of the Cave since it's a really great way of introducing students to the idea of questioning their realities and questioning what they thought they once knew. And I think it's done in a really inspiring way in the dialogue because it shows how people are resistant to seeing the light. And there's so many connections that you can make between that and just our contemporary society and how people have to want to see the light in order to see the light. There, there can be so much resistance with that. So starting off with that, and then we continue to explore some of the history of Western philosophy with thinkers like Descartes, who continue to question how how we know things. And then there's a transition between more of the epistemology aspect of the course, which relates to questioning our knowledge and how we know everything to, okay, well, how could we apply this to social political philosophy? And then that's where Marxism comes in and questioning the human condition, questioning our work, questioning the material conditions of our everyday lives. And we continue to question those aspects, but then we take it to existentialism where we're trying to understand perhaps a more ambiguous question of what does it mean to be? What does it mean to exist? And then it gets a lot more contemporary and applied with yeah, what does it mean to be and what does it mean to exist through the lens of gender and feminist theory with Simone de Beauvoir or like intersectional theory with Gloria Anzaldúa and understanding having multiple identities and then concluding it with racial identity and how in Cornell West Race Matters he talks about how democracy is failing people of color and so we question the idea of a democracy and so being able to think about questioning our realities through the lens of the cave and the light and how we don't all have the opportunity to see the light I think is the connection that I can make between Plato and Cornell West Race Matters in terms of how democracy is failing people of color and Cornell West integrates existentialism with nihilism and and despair, along with different gender theory, feminist theory of how the experience for people of different genders is going to vary given how patriarchy exists. So that's kind of the connections I see between Plato and Allegory of the Cave and Cornell West's Race Matters.
0: I know that the word lecture has become a dirty word in many, if not most, circles in education. Do you lecture?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's all of this kind of discourse about the flipped classroom and active learning and everything. And I think those are really important. But I do, when I introduce a new unit about 30 minutes of lecture. It's not as if I'm standing there talking the entire time, but I try to frame it with a question that I ask students before I start talking about the material to try to engage them. And then I discuss the material, but I also ask them throughout questions. So that way they continue to perhaps be more alert. I do think that lecture in terms of it being a moderate amount of lecture is important Specifically with with the courses I'm teaching, since a lot of the texts are written a long time ago in a very different way, there's a historical context too that needs to be discussed, and I think sometimes students feel as if you just do 100% active learning that. They're not getting what they need, where they feel like, oh, I have to do all the learning by myself, blah, blah, blah. And that's not necessarily what's happening with active learning, but sometimes students can feel that way. And I just want to make sure that students have that opportunity to to ask questions. And if there was some confusion, the lecture can be a good time to clarify that confusion. I personally, when I was a student, I loved lecture and I used to do a lot more lecture when I first started teaching. And that's an example of a bias I had. And then I realized that, oh, that's really not engaging for everyone. So I ended up breaking things down a lot more, adding a lot of different teaching methodology, but I still do have some lecture. I also have videos that I recorded for online courses, but it's also there for anyone who just wants to watch it, even if they have me for a face-to-face class.
0: Can we link to some of those videos in the show notes of our conversation here?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's it's all on it's on a YouTube channel. So it's there for anyone to see.
0: Sweet. I'm familiar with the YouTubes. <laughs> we'll 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 link our listeners to exactly that. Shanti, I'm gaga about your syllabus. I have a deeply rooted reverence for Plato and a love for Cornel West. And I could talk about your intro course all day. I bet you could too. But you also teach an ethics course. Your text for this course is called Doing Ethics. And I wonder, what does it imply to you to do ethics? Like, how do you teach students to do ethics?
1: So I mentioned before how I felt a tension between theory and practice. And I think with doing ethics, it's a way to apply theory to practice. So with doing ethics, and specifically with my ethics course, it's half theory and then half applied issues. So students are encouraged to apply the specific concepts such as Kantian deontology or Aristotle's virtue ethics or Miller's utilitarianism to very specific contemporary moral issues that we are grappling with in our society today. And to do ethics in that way is to, I think it starts with examining how ethics plays out in one's own life. So I encourage students to think about ethical dilemmas they have, for example, with Aristotle. How would the golden mean be applied in a situation that you're grappling with right now or it's someone that you know is grappling with right now? And to try to think about how we can apply these ethical concepts and theories to our own lives, because if we just learn about it with the theories and not really think about how they can be applied, I don't think it's very exciting or interesting for students. And the beauty of these texts in the Doing Ethics book is that they can be applied to these contemporary issues. So what does it mean, for example, with the Kantian idea to use a person as a means to an end? Why is that wrong? I think a lot of the social norms and ethical principles that we tend to live by, we tend to do it without necessarily questioning their origins or questioning, well, why is it this way and should I really be living my life this way? And I think with these ethical theories, they help us recognize, well, okay, this makes sense as to why I'm doing this or why this principle or this action is wrong. So for example, we tend to think of murdering an innocent person is wrong, but like, why is that wrong? What makes it wrong? So Kantian theory can be used, I think, to kind of help us think about it in an objective way of, well, it's wrong to use a rational person or a person in general. I know there's some issues with Kant and rationality, but a <laughs> It's yeah. unethical to use a, a person as a means to an end because it violates their rationality, it violates their autonomy. And so I think thinking about it in that way it can help us with some of the quote unquote gray areas that we consider, such as war or euthanasia or abortion. And we have these ideas about these specific ethical problems already, but then applying these concepts to these issues, I think, helps us do ethics because we're thinking about them, but I think it can also help us act on our ethical ideals. So just as an example, with the fact that climate change is an urgent problem and it's a pressing issue, how would someone apply more sustainable practices in their lives. And how could that be connected to mills utilitarianism with the notion of the common good or the greatest happiness principle and doing something that benefits the majority or everyone involved. So I think environmental ethics can be a great connection that way. And for their final project, I have them changing a behavior or starting a behavior or changing a habit or something along those lines and then for a, a few weeks. So it's not as if it's a really long period of time, but I think a lot of students come into this course thinking about how they want to maybe change certain things or how they want to do certain things. And it's always hard actually doing it, making those changes. So this is an opportunity for students to apply what we have learned and what we talked about to doing something that they care about in their lives. Some examples have been students have been veg curious and then they didn't eat meat for three weeks and then they realized, oh, it's not as hard as I thought. Or another student stopped using social media for three weeks and then recognized that they felt a lot happier and that it's important to take breaks from social media. And that can be related to Aristotle's eudaimonia and that notion of flourishing and happiness. And so those are just some examples of how I see all of us doing ethics together.
0: I really dig those examples. And Shanti, I'm so fond of you that I'm kind of like desperately afraid that this is going to be an annoying question. But I want to press a little bit on this balance that you try to strike between theory and practice. And maybe the best way to do that is to like ask you how important it is that your students really grapple with, for example, Kant's intellectual argumentation, you know, taking deontology, for example, and its historical context versus grappling with the practical applications of Kant's challenge. Like, I dig why you want them to grapple with the practical applications of Kant's Premises. But what I'm not so sure about, and what I hope you might speak about, is like how important is it to you that they can closely and slowly read Kant and quote unquote speak Kant? It's
1: definitely attention I experience and have experienced um, with teaching philosophy, and I see it as most of my students are not philosophy majors. Most of them are taking my classes because they have to, because it transfers to a four-year. That's kind of the reality of the mindset that most of my students are coming in with. And so if I really focus on speaking speaking in Kant and solely within that context, the historical context of Kant, I will, I think alienate some students or perhaps most of my students. And so while it may not be 100% pure, quote-unquote, pure Kant, or what some people might say, like pure philosophy, that's not necessarily why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's not necessarily why my students are here taking classes in philosophy. So perhaps I'm being utilitarian about it, but I'm trying to encourage students to be more engaged with the material. and I And just even thinking about myself as a student, well, I was really excited about learning those theories in and for themselves. I found them intrinsically valuable. It's not what inspired me to major in philosophy. It was being able to apply those theories to real life. And I, perhaps that's obviously that's a bias I come in with. But I think a lot of because of how elitist philosophy can be, because it's has one primary voice for Many centuries, I think that can be really alienating to students. That can be alienating to women. It can be alienating to students of color. And I think if you don't really see yourself in what you're studying and it's like, oh, the same dead white guy I'm reading, like that's not necessarily going to be something they can connect with. And that's kind of what I have in the back of my mind, just as someone who's experienced that myself as a student. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, where, yeah, it's not. People might say I'm what I mean. I am watering down, quote unquote, watering down Kant or some of these theories. But that's not my primary goal. If this was a graduate course, if this was a 400 level advanced course where students are voluntarily and really interested in the material, they're they're coming in with that interest. It would be a different story. But because I'm teaching mainly students who are coming in because they have to take this class, they're not majors. Many of them work at least part time. Many of them have families that they have to take care of. And so it's just trying to think about that balance again, where, okay, given these realities that they're facing, given the demographics, given the reason behind them taking this class, like, how can I teach this material in a way that resonates with them the most while at the same time, encouraging those critical thinking skills?
0: Yeah, I hear you. Look... Critics might say you're watering down philosophy, you're watering down Kant, but it seems to me that your effort is to democratize philosophy. How do you do that, right? Like, how do you make very difficult texts be challenging because they're supposed to challenge us, but to make them likewise accessible?
1: with these difficult texts, as you said, right, they are extremely difficult and we do want to challenge our students. And I think that's part of the reason why I provide a lot of material, supplemental material with notes, you know, presentations, videos, and then my, my lectures as a way to try to kind of break down these ideas. But then I attempt to democratize it by asking students how they can apply these ideas to their own lives. So with existentialism, for the assignment that I have for that, I ask students to write a letter to a hypothetical friend or person or themselves in terms of having an existential dilemma. And so what does that even mean to have an existential dilemma? And how would we apply existentialism to experiencing that apathy and that that anxiety, that that angst? Because I think especially, I mean, at any age of our life, we, we experience it. We experience multiple existential dilemmas. But I think in college, there's that anxiety about, okay, what am I going to do? What's next? What's next? And I think that assignment can be helpful with trying to apply something that's so challenging, such as choosing a major, choosing a career, and being able to live with ourselves through that process. So I would say that's an example of how I attempt to democratize it in terms of my assignments. And then, in terms of the specific content I teach, it's always been a commitment of mine to teach philosophy and philosophers outside of the main canon. So, teaching outside of like Plato and Descartes and Hume, and to think about it in terms of okay, what about what are some contemporary philosophers or what are who are some people that I can teach that, yeah, maybe someone in their ivory tower may not think of them as a philosopher, but they're critical theorists. They're a thinker. They're a feminist. Um, they are, they're engaged in critical race theory, which I know is a big, scary term these days, but how, like, how can I infuse that material? So infusing diverse writers, infusing these concepts about diversity and identity, I think is a way I attempt to democratize philosophy. And I think that also comes just with my own, interest as a philosopher and as a human being, since that I think is what initially sparked my interest in philosophy, being able to apply it to gender and race and class.
0: Before we get back to your commitment to democratization, I have two smallish but substantial questions. First, can you direct our listeners to a contemporary political thinker that's not necessarily part of the philosophical canon that they could get their hands on and sink their teeth into?
1: I would say uh, Sarah Ahmed is, she does philosophy, critical theory, feminist theory, post-colonial theory, and she just came out, well, not just came out like a year or two ago, time is flying by right now, but, um, she came out with a book on feminist killjoys and the idea of always being that person to disrupt people's contentment or comfort with a situation. And I think that I know she's been, I guess, rooted in lit theory departments, but what she does is Political philosophy, too, and post colonial theory. So, I would definitely recommend her. And she has a blog, too, called Feminist Killjoys. And it's not just about solely about feminism, but it's feminism intersecting with all of these different issues. And I've seen her at conferences, and she's just a really inspiring speaker. But she breaks things down really well too.
0: Right on. Well, as a feminist killjoy myself, I will happily (laughs) link to that in our show notes. And then my second smallish, but important question is, you know, you had mentioned a moment ago, an assignment you give, and I thought it was super cool. And I wanted to ask you this question by way of follow-up. Do you have A favorite assignment, or at the very least, an assignment that you give students that's illustrative of some of the things that we've been speaking about hitherto?
1: Absolutely. There's a couple. One of them, one of my favorite ones is the existentialism one. And then another one that I really enjoy, and it's pleasant to grade, it's it's fun to grade, is the final blog post. So As I said, I try to think about how philosophy can be communicated in a way that is of our times. And blogging is obviously very popular and it's done in a way that is meant to be appealing for a wide audience. So instead of having, which I used to do when I first started teaching, but instead of having this like super intense, long final term paper, I have students write a final blog post paper and it's basically them Embodying the idea that they're a blogger, they have a blog, and they are exploring some sort of concept or aspect of our course that really resonated with them. And they're thinking through it, they're critiquing it or supporting it, and either infusing themselves in it or infusing a hypothetical person or just kind of thinking about it from a third person perspective. It's really based off of what they feel comfortable doing. But I think so much of Academic writing and academic philosophy can be alienating because you're meant to be this objective third person. You can't use personal pronouns. And I don't necessarily think that resonates with everyone. It it can get old pretty fast. And so with the final blog post, I'm attempting to have students embody and explore that course objective of applying philosophical concepts to social justice issues or their own lived experiences. And students have said that sometimes it's like really hard for them to start or they were really overwhelmed and they didn't know what to do, what they wanted to write about. But then once they got those creative juices flowing, once it started coming out on the computer, they really enjoyed the assignment and they appreciated being able to put themselves in the assignment because it's not necessarily encouraged all the time.
0: Awesome. Shanti, I really love that assignment, and it makes me wish that I still taught philosophy courses. Uh, I don't. But like you, I'm still deeply committed to democracy and democratization. And in part for that reason, I was really heartened to find that for several years, you had run an LGBTQ resource center at the College of Lake County, How did you start in that role? And like, what did that role come to mean to you?
1: While my main focus is on teaching, I also have opportunities to participate in other endeavors, such as the LGBTQ plus resource center or service learning or study abroad. And so basically, this is not a really exciting way of describing what happened, but my dean asked me, like, would you like to do this? And so what happens is that they rotate the director, the coordinator of it every couple years. And I was really excited to do it. I thought it would be a really great opportunity to kind of work with the students who are marginalized in these various ways and also to connect with our students outside of the classroom. And it was a really great opportunity to do that because I think inside of the classroom with teaching philosophy or just teaching in general, Things can maybe feel quite formal, but outside of the classroom, you see a different side of students. That's one of the reasons I decided to do it. And also, I personally have not experienced discrimination for my sexual orientation or my gender expression. So I felt kind of a tension about that. But at the same time, there was a need. They needed someone to do that. And I was really excited to have that opportunity to affect change and to work with a student population that I really care about and that's basically how I started doing it and why I agreed to do it and it was such a, an amazing opportunity because like I said I was able to really get to know students outside of the classroom I I was able to work with two student workers or two student interns and that was one of the best I guess like most gratifying aspects of it because I was able to really have like great reflections and one-on-ones with them and kind of see how they're doing with this journey that they're on and being able to work with them and collaborate with them on programming and kind of hearing from them, like what students are interested in, what students are looking for. I learned so much. And I also, even if I'm someone who, you know, I research things and I try to educate myself on vocabulary and identities and I guess cultural shifts and everything. There's nothing like learning directly from your students about that, seeing what they're going through and engaging in these conversations with them. And even just, you know, being in, in the resource center, the physical space of that office, students would come in and hang out and talk and socialize. And I thought that it was really powerful to experience that. It was a privilege to experience that because it's, as if I wasn't in the room sometimes, just being able to get to know students and hear them talk about various issues and their own identities, I think was really inspiring for me as as someone who continues to want to learn all the time. And also just thinking about the courage that so many of these students have. And I also think having this opportunity to affect change and, and work with the specific LGBTQIA plus population at CLC or in Lake County, it was really great to think about various like trainings and ways that I can, I kind of felt like I was a liaison between the students and the faculty or the students and the staff since there can be that disconnect. So I think that was really helpful to me in terms of working with other faculty because you know faculty members might be confused about oh what what language should i use and what should i do and what should i say and so being able to help faculty cultivate a safe space and an open environment i think was also another really gratifying aspect of that and specific information and practices that i've implemented myself into my classes from what i learned from my students at the resource center it's just it was really powerful and It was just such an authentic connection to have with the students.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it's really wrapped up in your deeply rooted commitment to empowerment. And I know that in addition to working in the LGBTQIA Resource Center, your work as a philosophy instructor speaks to that commitment to empowerment. But it's not just you empowering your students. I think it has something to do with your own empowerment also. And I say that because of something I read on your website, and I hope you don't mind if I read to you from your website and then ask you a question. Do you mind? Oh, no, go ahead. (laughs) You say, as a philosophy professor it's a duty and a calling of mine to make philosophy widely understood. It has the power to change our world and ourselves if we're open to it. Philosophy allows us to grapple with our identities, the political sphere, and morality. We attempt to understand the human condition, reality, animal ethics, the purpose of government and society, and so much more through philosophy. Philosophy is deeply ingrained in our everyday lives as we search for truth, knowledge, and justice. And then you say, philosophy has helped me personally in my life as a human, woman, educator, and thinker. And my question, Shanti, is how has philosophy helped you?
1: It's empowering to me because it's hard to disentangle your identity and your work from one another. They're deeply interwoven for me, and I found philosophy empowering for me, I guess, At first, when I was in high school and you ran Philosophy Club, I had a community and I felt like I was in a safe space to ask these questions. And to throughout my life, I kind of just felt like I was weird thinking about these quote unquote deep questions and then not necessarily knowing like what to do with them or how to engage with them. So, like being able to talk about that in Philosophy Club with you in in high school, I think was empowering to me because I just felt less alienated, less alone. And then in college with understanding how philosophy can be applied to social justice, I think was empowering for me because I've always enjoyed these deep questions. I've always enjoyed theory. And sometimes doing a lot of concrete things can feel quite overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. And so being able to like recognize that, oh, I can have some sort of effect but doing it in a way that works with how I am as a person or thinker was really empowering. And also my ethics professor was a younger woman. And I think being able to see like, wow, you know, cause most of my philosophy professors were men were white men. And so being able to see like, Oh, so here's someone who's an amazing professor an amazing philosopher. And she's a younger woman. And like, I felt really excited about that and how I think in our society it's like, yeah, we we have a patriarchal society and things have gotten better, right? Women are working, etc. But I think that encouraging women to ask these important questions and not making us feel like we're quote unquote crazy because we have been viewed as crazy throughout different time periods, I think was empowering to me. And and reading Mary Wollstonecraft for the first time in my feminist philosophy course in college was just incredible to see how, wow, or reading when I first read Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and the things that she's talking about while it was published in 1949, I was still able to relate to it because a lot of these ideas of how women are still viewed as accessories at times really resonated with me. and then. In my French courses, because I minored in French, we read about postcolonial theory and how there was this hybridity experienced. And I read Franz Fanon for the first time, and he talked about just feeling in his experiences as a Black person in Martinique, colonized by French people, white French people. I think, obviously, it's different, a totally different experience, but having that type of inferiority complex that he talks about in a different way as someone who... Grew up in predominantly white suburbia. I'm half Hungarian and half Indian, so I definitely felt like an other and an outsider. And then reading about this otherness, reading about this hybridity from thinkers like Simone de Beauvoir or Franz Fanon or Sarah Ahmed later on, I think was really empowering to me. Just in terms of feeling like, oh wow, there's other people who experience this, and they wrote about it, and they're they're published, and they're well respected. Like this is incredible. Yeah. And being able to just kind of pursue those questions in my research and just in my academic, I guess, intellectual journey was really empowering.
0: Well, it warms me to hear that. And I know that your work is empowering and it is clear that you empower so many of your students. Your work isn't easy as empowering as it may be, maybe you can take a moment, if you would be so kind, to give us the other side. Like, what's the grind of it all? Like, being a philosophy instructor at a community college is, it's not the easiest job in the world. In fact, there just must be parts of it that drive you bonkers. So what's that side of the job?
1: I would say there's two main ones. One is more of a practical issue. Another one is more of an issue with the times we're living in, philosophy, et cetera. Um, But I'll start off with the bigger one and then I'll talk about the more practical one. But with the bigger issue, because I teach topics like feminist theory, critical race theory, um, issues of identity, Marxist theory, right? There's, I think, an attack on people who teach this type of material and while it's kind of viewed as, Oh, you're being political by teaching this. And at the same time, it's in my experiences and just in life, it's, it's just, this is just part of life. Like it's not being the, the personal is a political things are made to be politicized. They don't necessarily have to innately be political, but if we don't necessarily talk about it in the space or in the sphere of a classroom, then where else are people going to be able to talk about it? And I think there's just been a lot of pushback about that. Um, I mean, it's been happening ever since I started teaching, but I think especially right now um, with what's happening with like the attack on critical race theory and just, there's a, I think a backlash happening right now and it's not just at CLC or in Lake County, but it's happening all over the country. But I think, that can be quite frustrating because I'm attempting to make this material applicable to students. And it is, it it can be very applicable when we think about it through these various lens of identity. But at the same time, it's viewed as I have an agenda sometimes. And it's it's not necessarily my, you know, I'm I'm not this maniacal person like, oh, I'm going to make them all think this, but it's just Like, hey, this is reality. This is what we're talking about. Here's a way that you can engage with it and you don't have to agree with it. So I think that's definitely a really difficult aspect. And also just my embodiment as a woman talking about these issues. It's like, oh, there she is talking about feminist theory again, like big deal. That's something that is not a great part of my job. And also just the practical aspect of it, of just, I spend so much time grading and it's not really fulfilling. Whereas when you're in the classroom, you're you're interacting with students, right? That can feel really fulfilling. But with grading, so many of us hate grading and so many students hate being graded, Yeah. but we all do it. It's a requirement. It's an expectation. It has to be super quantitative. And I think with philosophy, it can be really hard for it to be as quantitative as it's expected. Grading without biases, grading objectively, I think is so challenging because I'm not grading multiple choice tests. You know, I'm grading papers, I'm grading blog posts, I'm grading these different projects from students. And while I attempt to be as objective and unbiased as possible, at the same time, it's like being in a community college setting, too. So many students are working. Some of them are working full time, or they, they're dealing with like family issues, and you want to encourage them to finish the class, finish the degree. But at the same time, there are a lot of barriers these students are facing. And so, as a person who is teaching this class, like how can I be fair to them, be fair to other students? And I think grading is definitely an issue with that. Or students come in with varying levels of writing abilities and speaking abilities and it's not their fault if they were in a school system that was underfunded right but then how and how do you grade fairly or how do you grade in a way that doesn't make them shut down yeah so there's these ethical questions of fairness of justice happening also just the practical issue of grading just being very repetitive and taking up a lot of time
0: yeah yeah I'm likewise vexed by it and for some of the same reasons it it can't be your favorite part of the job but what is your favorite part of the job like what do you love about being a philosophy professor at a community college
1: I really love when you see that light go off in their heads or their minds. And you can tell with their eyes, like they're really interested in a specific question I'm asking or in in the material. So for example, at a community college, you might have more working class students. And so if I'm talking about Marxism, they're really, really excited about it. And, And when we talk about alienated labor, and then I ask them if they have any examples of feeling alienated in their labor, They just get really excited and like a bunch of hands go up and and they talk about experiences they've had. I used to teach at University of Dayton, which is a private university. More students from like middle and upper class backgrounds would go there. And some of the applied stuff, like students had a harder time making those connections because of just their experiences, not necessarily having to work or not having like to having, not having to take care of family members or things like that. And so I think that's one of the things I love at being at a community college where students come with really rich experiences that I think helps them be able to apply philosophy to their everyday lives. So being able to hear those connections, see those connections, see that excitement is the most fulfilling aspect of my job.
0: Yeah, it sounds fulfilling, And I imagine that you've always had a knack for this. My sense of you is that you went into this profession with a deeply rooted commitment, a certain capacity, to say the very least, and a profound sense of justice, which I think animates you as an instructor. And it brings people into the fold. And it helps that you're a lifelong learner. You've been doing this for a decade and change. And I wonder like what you know about teaching now that you didn't know, say five years ago.
1: I think especially in in the past five years, embracing the fact that you can't plan every minute of every class to a T and being okay with more spontaneity, being okay with, you may not necessarily have the time to do everything you wanted to do in that class, but Hey, students were really excited about this and it sparked this great discussion and that matters more than sticking to the schedule. And it is a privilege that I am able to have that flexibility in higher ed because I wouldn't necessarily have that kind of flexibility teaching K through 12, but Being able to kind of, I guess, roll with the punches and recognize that, hey, we maybe should spend more time on this or less time on this and that as someone who really likes planning things and feels a lot more secure having everything planned, that's not always how it is with teaching and and that's okay. And so being able to embrace that change and recognize that students do have different ways of learning and to really infuse different aspects of pedagogy and activities and learning into my courses is definitely something that I've been trying to do more in the past five years. And I think I had that idea, especially when I first started teaching of, oh, students aren't going to respect you if you're flexible with due dates and flexible with policies, they're just going to walk all over you. And then especially being a relatively younger faculty member and being a woman and all these things, it's like, students don't necessarily think of me when they think of a philosophy professor or as a teacher or or as an educator they might think of like an older white man and so i felt like i had to prove myself like especially at the beginning of no i am firm on these policies etc and then in the past five years i've been reading a lot more and going to these trainings on equity and one of the things that i've done is i have soft due dates i don't have hard due dates anymore and i I first thought like well students aren't going to take this seriously and then having done this I was completely wrong about the consequences of that. I don't think it has led to students respecting me less. I think it just encourages students who want to do the work, but maybe not necessarily on this arbitrary timeline. I said on a syllabus, right? They have that ability to do the work and they do the work. And they've said that they really appreciate having that option because you can't necessarily control what happens to you. And I think, especially at a community college, you have to be flexible with pretty much everything you're doing. So That is definitely something that I have learned a lot more these past five years.
0: I feel you. Like, I think that the enthusiasm that manifests from serendipity and improvisation goes a long way. We should all be playing jazz, right?
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. As Cornel West says, and too, and and at the end of Race Matters, (laughs) the jazz metaphor.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, you go Shanti Chu. Hey, listen, I want to get a little advice from you because you've been teaching in online and hybrid modes since well before the pandemic. And I wonder what you've learned about effective and empathic online and hybrid instruction that you can maybe share with those of us who were kind of involuntarily thrown into this because of the pandemic.
1: Absolutely. So I think with what I was saying of embracing spontaneity and also recognizing that what you have planned may not happen, I think that applies to online learning and get kind of recognizing that online learning is a different modality. So the kinds of things that may work in the face-to-face classroom may not necessarily work online. So when I started online teaching prior to the pandemic, I took these various courses on online learning and like pedagogy. And one of the things I recognize is how you have to be very clear and specific about expectations, like clearer than you would be in your face-to-face, especially if there isn't that Zoom component and it's just online anytime, right? They just have to go off of what they see written on Canvas or Blackboard or whatever learning system you're using. And... I've definitely worked on being as clear as possible and clearer than than I was before I started online teaching and it has also helped me in my face to face classes because sometimes we assume people might know what we're talking about or they might know what we mean when we say a phrase but they may not necessarily know that and I think just recognizing that we should be as clear as possible is a form of empathic teaching and also being more flexible with expectations in terms of your own teaching expectations, I think is really helpful and just continuously having the mindset that, okay, this is not face-to-face teaching and the kinds of things that work there may not work for this specific modality.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I, I feel that like the relationship between expectations and empathy and erring on the side of empathy It goes a long way to defining how to succeed in online and hybrid instruction. I'm working on it. I've definitely become a more empathic instructor over the last couple of years. I think it has something to do with watching my daughter try to be a student despite the times, but also just like having the otherwise almost painfully predictable work schedule that i had prior to the pandemic dissipate in like a moment <laughs> i think i had always known like how unique my work was and that like i knew what i was doing 45 minutes at a time monday through friday from 8 to 4 mm-hmm. You know, that's not the way the world works so much anymore, right? We know that the education system as we know it was built to model an industrial age that we in the West no longer really live in, right? We live in a post-industrial age, but our education system hasn't really evolved along with our economy Mm -hmm. and our ways of thinking and being. Mm -hmm. And so I have this almost strangely regimented work schedule. And then it was just pulled out from under me. And I have to say, I found it equal parts liberating and suffocating. Liberating because I got to do all sorts of cool new stuff. Suffocating because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do all that cool new stuff. But I know I'm not alone in that, and I take a lot of solace in community. And I know that you do too. Shanti, you've been a splendid guest. I have always enjoyed you so tremendously, but I can't let you leave without sharing two stories. Would you be so kind as to share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure and begin with a failure so that we can end quite appropriately, I should say? (laughs) and the note of triumph.
1: Sure, absolutely. I, when I first started teaching, especially these issues relating to class, gender, race, I perhaps would alienate students who didn't necessarily agree with the material. And that was me coming straight out of my MA program without really any teaching background or teaching training. And over the years, I, I, Or I think I have gotten a lot better at not alienating people and trying to encourage more questions, more disagreement with the material, too, with conveying that, hey, you do not have to agree with this. Let's think about this together. Right. Here are some of these counter arguments that are given for this. And I think that with students who have various political views, I have attempted to make the classroom a more inclusive environment in terms of that. When I first started teaching, I was definitely way more, let's just say, like, biased liberally in in my classes. And that was definitely a failure.
0: Yeah, I think I might have done some of that as well. Mm. Live and learn, grow and evolve, try not to be vessels of shame and pain, right? (sighs) Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. All right. I want the success. Let's hear it.
1: So on the flip side of that, too, when I think about how I'm attempting to empower my students intellectually and also as humans, um, one of the topics and ethics that I teach about is oppression. And I I discuss like various aspects of oppression. One of them is racism. And so I had a student who... She, w- she came into the class. She wasn't really excited about taking ethics. And I think for like probably the first half of the semester, she wasn't very keen on what we were doing. And then I taught bell hooks during our unit on racism. And she was just very excited. She felt intrigued by the material. She felt like she could also personally connect with the material. And she had told me that reading bell hooks was life-changing for her. And she was just really excited that she had the opportunity to do that. And just hearing that and seeing that unfold in class, I think it's definitely a success because it is the idea of teaching material that can be empowering to students is something really important. And for that to happen is exciting, unique, and really emotionally intense too. But it's such a fulfilling aspect of of my
0: work. And I know it's so fulfilling for your students as well. Shanti, I've long thought that you're an earnest, empathic, and an endlessly kind person. And I'm so honored that you joined me in conversation on this podcast. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It was
1: a wonderful engagement to be able to discuss all of these topics with you as Someone who I admire, so thank you.
0: Alright, my friends, that was me in conversation with philosophy instructor Shanti Chu. A fountain of inspiration and like I said, a reason for hope. If you enjoyed our conversation and you'd like to support independent creators, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to Patreon.com slash duds. You'll find the link in the show notes. I'm happy to reward you for your support you can get a little something in exchange for a wee donation. And if you're not in a position to patronize my project and you need to take a free ride, I get it. We're good. But you can still do your part to help. Maybe just do this. Hit the follow button or the subscribe button right now. And tell a friend or a loved one to listen to your favorite episode. It'd be pretty easy just to send them this episode with Shanti Chu. She's amazing. And remember, I linked to a lot of the things that we discussed in the show notes of this episode. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that you would be remiss to not tune in next week, where I'll stay in the field of education and dive into the working life of Barrett Ebert, the Vice President of Programs at the American Academy in Berlin. Barrett's a real star, and I know you're gonna enjoy that conversation. So I'll look forward to being with you again in two weeks. And between now and then, I hope you're finding joy in all things autumnal. I'll talk to you soon.